Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of May, we're honoring the haunting horrors of Mike Flanagan, the man behind the likes of the isolation horror of Hush, the supernatural terror of Oculus, and countless Stephen King adaptations, such as today's focus, that being Gerald's Game for Netflix. Gerald's Game is a film that is a display of Flanagan's prowess as the current de facto go-to man on adapting King novels onto the screen. Co-written by Jeff Howard, Flanagan takes this simple premise, a woman handcuffed to her bed after her spouse suffers a heart attack, and applies an introspective psychological angle. Now it's a race against time as Jesse must outlast dehydration, starvation, or the hungry dog that stalks her, waiting to see if her mind or body will break first. Flanagan is able to make a multi-layered impersonable tale, which on paper sounds like it would last all of 15 minutes, but stretches it out into a terrifying feature as only he can. And to break down the psychological and isolation horror of Gerald's game is returning friend of the show, Will. Will, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, I've enjoyed having you on so much. And today we get to talk about uh, a favorite director of yours and uh, one of mine as well, Mike Flanagan, right? It's... uh, He's the focus for this month, and uh, you have picked Gerald's Game for us to talk about, which is currently streaming on Netflix for uh, anybody that's interested in checking out a movie that I'm surprised works so well, right? I mean, when you think about that premise, it's so simple, but it's one that if, if somebody that was not nearly as capable kind of tries to tackle, it just becomes a movie about a woman in a bed, but... Mike Flanagan is able to make it so much more. Yeah, than that. it's it's one of those movies that's really easy to sell. Like you could sell it in like two sentences, but you're like almost <laughs> hesitant to like recommend it because of how like insane it is. Like it's so like high octane trauma fueled, <laughs> and so you know like you're recommending it because it is an amazing movie. But you're just like you know get ready for it. Considering how uh, how simple the premise is, like you said, and how easy it is to kind of summarize. Mm-hmm. Flanagan really does give this movie a lot of different layers to mm-hmm. it, right? And packaging the characters in a way that I find, again, like, it you almost feel like you're doing the film a disservice by just sort of going by the synopsis of it, which is so simple. And yet it is one of those movies that the more I rewatch it, it just it, it shows Flanagan's kind of just knack for taking these maybe King's more kind of like simple premises. And yet he's able to really flesh those out into the the smaller screen in a way that I think is really, really phenomenal. And it just shows like his ability to sort of maneuver King's works is really sort of like unrivaled. Oh yeah. Like, and, and that's the thing is like with King's like storytelling with his narrative, it's like, he's really good at like building up stuff. And for like this kind of premise, the fact that like the momentum of like the different things she has to like start, like, you know, between the uh, hydration and the, you know, the dog trying to eat her feet. And uh, if this, this man (laughs) in the corner is real or, or, or not, like, I do appreciate that. Like in the first 20 minutes, she already loses her mind. I'm like, this is so realistic. Mm -hmm. Like in that sense, like, the fact that she already snaps. <laughs> I think before we kind of get too much into Gerald's game, I'm curious, like, what is the first movie that really introduced you to Mike Flanagan and his uh, body of uh, work? It was actually Gerald's game, <laughs> believe it or not. 
Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I was already familiar with the story and the and the novel, and I had never I had never read it. And uh, it was actually when this guy uh, announced, and I knew that he had already done horror prior. And I'm like, okay, I'm always down for a Stephen King adaptation. And that's when I actually uh, bought the book, and I read it, and I was like, oh my gosh, how are they going to adapt this? And yeah, you know, and yeah. yeah so uh, my first uh, introduction with Flanagan was Geraldine. Perfect. That's a perfect primer for our chat. I mean, it really is not that I'd read the novel, but just based off of sort of like the synopsis and what I knew about it going in, it really is a daunting task to try to adapt that, right? How do you make a woman trapped in a bed entertaining and horrifying and more than just sort of that simplistic premise and then stretch that out into like 105 or whatever minute movie? Yeah. Um, and it really is one of those examples that Flanagan is not only very familiar with King's voice in a lot of ways, but he understands like the true essence of King's stories, mm-hmm. right? Because again, this idea that if it was a lesser director or maybe just a director that wasn't as clearly a fan of King's body of work, they might kind of try to focus on the elements more so like her trying to cut her hand off earlier yeah, or yeah. the dog coming back five or six times to try to eat her or even more wild hallucinations. But Flanagan never really loses sight of the reality that this is about a woman kind of like unpackaging a part of her life that she was never willing to yeah, face. Yeah, exactly. Like like the 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 fact that she just like it hurls her like right into facing her own traumas too, and like and the the trickery too. Like how many times she 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 believes something's happening and her mind is just like, nope, that's not it yet. Like you're hallucinating and oh yeah, just the mental trauma. The mental trauma. You're not like when you hear the synopsis, you're like, okay, that's gonna be like painfully uncomfortable. Like how you get out of that situation and it's like oh no that's not even the half of it like <laughs> and i think your point earlier about just the it, within the first 20 minutes like she's lost her mind essentially and she starts hallucinating and she sees her dead husband uh basically rises from the grave to start taunting her and then she hallucinates another version of herself that is there to sort of like guide her but also force her to really unpack a lot of that trauma and essentially like teach her that in doing that, that can be potentially like her salvation. I mean, we know everything about these characters within the first 20 minutes. She's lost her mind. And then it really becomes about her navigating both her current predicament and a predicament from her past that she has not addressed. And I mean, that's such a fantastic way for uh, Flanagan to really just be very sort of like economical with his time. Again, like it's not that long of a movie and yet you're pretty much gripped right from the beginning, right? He's so subtle in the ways that he introduces our characters, and then he puts them into the, into this uh, overtly terrifying and uncomfortable <laughs> and uh, and very dark situation oh, yeah. right as soon as you kind of get comfortable yeah, with them. Yeah, exactly. But I think also, I mean, the way that the movie begins and just, it's from the opening moments, right, when they're packing their bags for their weekend mm-hmm. retreat, you see Jesse, who is sort of, being very methodical and folding all these clothes and everything. And then you see her husband who has his night bag and you just see him place the handcuffs on top of it. And you're like, okay, I feel like from the opening moments, we already know a lot about these characters, like temperament or like their potential for what they're capable of. Yeah. Like you already kind of like sympathize with her and you already like kind of dislike, you already have like that kind of disliking for him in that sense. Like even just like their conversation in the car ride with the dog and everything and his mannerisms, you can already like tell. It reminded me a lot of like with the invisible man with uh, Elizabeth Moss, how like it started right off the bat. Like you didn't really need to know all, all the backstory. All it was just how she approached leaving the house. It's a, it, it reminded me of the exact, yeah. exact same kind of like um, 
uh, vibe to it. Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, comparison because, yeah, you really do get all you need from their body language, right? I mean, they're driving and then he kind of like she puts her hand out and then he puts his hand like on her thigh and then tries to like move up further. And she kind of like very briskly just moves it away. And then you're thinking to yourself when you're watching that, you're like, okay, clearly she they're not on the same wavelength. (laughs) their relationship or otherwise and then as soon as i saw that scene i started thinking okay well if she is not into that kind of behavior how is she going to react when the <laughs> yeah exactly out, right i mean it it's such a smart way of not having to give us a 20 minute highlight of what their relationship is like i feel like you know what their relationship is like from the first two minutes of the yeah, movie and it really helps with the uh the isolation factor too like you you know you, you just see them driving up they're already there there's no stops at gas stations no other characters introduced and then it's just besides the dog besides the little cujo <laughs> <laughs> i do love too how even though it's not necessarily a detail about either character we still get little details about their setting and their surroundings right we kind of get early on that they are very much isolated like you said But then also when they're walking into the house after she wanted to feed the dog and the husband has that line where he's like, oh, you have such a good heart. And then, of course, there's like the irony of the fact that her good heart essentially allows the dog a way to get into the house. Right. (laughs) Also, like the little slow motion shot when they walk into the house of leaving the door open, which at first you're like, "Okay, this seems like such an inconsequential or inconsequential uh, little moment to highlight. But then, of course, that is an entire new facet of sort of like where the tension comes from in this situation and just how much uh, how much more uh, apparent it is that she needs to escape because of this new sort of like threat that lets itself into the yeah. house. So as somebody that's familiar with the novel and the movie, obviously, what is an element sort of that you were surprised that Flanagan was able to really kind of bring to light or adapt in a way that was faithful? Um, I, I'd honestly say like uh, just, just the aspect of um, how her, her, uh, her talking to herself like that whole that whole mental mm. aspect and with her husband involved too i was wondering how they were going to really approach that and it, it kind of seems obvious on the surface but that like really rolled the dialogue well like there, there's i mean there's parts where like you know you know they're 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 unraveling all the you know like the exposition and stuff like that to get her to get to the point where she's facing you know her traumas and stuff and and uh that mostly is just you know with that dialogue and stuff like that it was just really good to carry it in that like such the like bottle episode uh, aspect of the room on the surface that seems like the obvious example but then again you have to remember this movie is probably 75 percent dialogue mm-hmm. right and i think the way that he captures that both uh, in introducing the characters their dialogue how much you're able to really get a deeper sense of their relationship and unpacking that that we, we don't need a 20 minute prologue about yeah right? yeah i think that his ability to almost portray this series of events like it's a play. Like I felt like that a lot on this uh, most recent rewatch. It feels very kind of just stage-like in this. They have this very snappy back and forth dialogue. There's not a lot of like effects or big action moments in it, obviously. Yeah, true. And I think that those, them being the highlight is really what makes this movie Mm -hmm. work. Yeah, like I, you could totally see this as like a, a stage play. Like they could totally do that if they wanted to. <laughs> this adaptation is yeah, so good. Absolutely. Though, like, yeah, and I think that a lot of it is based on um, Jesse and Gerald's performances, right? Which is Bruce Greenwood and uh, Carla. Oh, yeah, Carla. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious why she's become one of these actresses that uh, Flanagan obviously has brought on to a lot of his mm-hmm. projects, right? Haunting Hill House and the like. And she's an actress that 
She's really able to sell this character as somebody that is very vulnerable and yet not vulnerable in the way that she's consistently being taken advantage of, I suppose, in the in the present, yeah. right? It's this idea that she's, just because she has been in this unfortunate situation and she's kind of unpacking the trauma and how that's had an effect on her, obviously, current relationship, she's still a character that never feels completely helpless, which I think is important because this movie takes on another tone if she is a completely helpless woman that is chained to a bed, yeah. right? I think the way that Flanagan really obviously adapts the uh, from the King's novel into ensuring that she always seems like somebody that is very capable is important because then the movie becomes very different if she's this person that spends the entire film just screaming. Yeah, exactly. Like like the, the balance of how vulnerable she seemed because of her situation, but also from Carla's performance, how like it's so easy to root for her also. So it's like, even though like the constant haymakers of like the dog situation, the hydration, the, the creepy <laughs> man in the corner, like even though like time is against her and all that, you're still just like, she's got to come out on top. This has to have a satisfying <laughs> ending. Like, there's no other way after all this. I think really works well, and I wasn't thinking about it previously on the first time I watched the film, but I don't know the pacing of the novel, but I think that the reveal of what happened to her in her childhood and how she was essentially, uh, well, she was, like, molested by her father, yeah. I feel that it's important that that does not come out early on. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's any different in the novel in terms of the pacing, but I feel like... The placement of that scene and the way that Flanagan handles such disturbing subject mm -hmm. matter is it's smart for two reasons. One, because if that's the first thing they lead with or they tell us that too early on, I feel like it almost feels manipulative, yeah. right? Because then it's almost like, how can you not feel bad for or how can you not root for this person? Because, oh, she's had this traumatic past and she's in this uh, furthermore traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that getting a sense of who she is and then learning about that is so important to her character development, or at least the audience's perception of her character. But also, it plays into the idea that Flanagan's handling of that, I feel, like it's disturbing subject matter, obviously, but the way that he portrays it, it's it's not to the degree that like you wanna stop watching or, you know what I yeah. mean? Like some directors, when they handle subject matter like that, it's like, this is so, the way that this is being portrayed is so disturbing that I like want yeah, to stop watching. Yeah, it can turn sour and real think, fast sometimes. Exactly, yeah. And I think that that's so key in the way Flanagan handles mm -hmm. it that it's not uh, exploitive or it's not like overly egregious that it's like, okay, this is getting to be too much. Because then you almost get sort of like knocked out of the groove that he starts with for the first 45 minutes of the movie. Yeah, right? exactly. Like to me, like when it comes to those scenes, I always think of like the child actors in those scenarios. And it's like, as long as it doesn't go too far, you know, it's like, obviously they're contracted. They know what they're doing. Of course, even though at that young age, yeah. it's like, you know, you never want the subject matter to be too extreme. You know what I mean? Like we're all just trying to mm -hmm. tell a story here, you know, we're all just, it's, we're all just trying to be entertained, but it, it is, you know, of course, in the, in the, in the factor of the story and the adaptation, it is like a pretty faithful, in that sense and he did a really good job of like not uh you know lingering on it too much but um you know uh, identifying it in, a, in an appropriate way yeah and i think also like it just shows how he is whether i mean he's obviously fantastic at adapting king works but also just his mind as a horror-centric filmmaker this idea that he's able to use the eclipse as the recurring reminder about what happened to her in the imagery mm -hmm. right it's not 
we're not getting really like a series of shots of like that moment of what happened yeah. to her. And yet it's more about his use of the eclipse and when he kind of like floods the scenery with that uh, red orange hue, which is haunting and terrifying. And it seems like it's the end of yeah. the world, much like I'm sure that event felt for uh, for Jesse at that age. But he's able to do it in a way that, again, is it's sinister and it's haunting, but he doesn't feel the need to sort of like return to that disturbing moment. He's able to sort of creatively think of like symbolism for it that is not overtly representing it, but almost in that it makes it more um, just like keeping us in the moment. It doesn't make us sort of like, again, want to stop or be like, this is getting too intense. Yeah, or something exactly. Like that. It, it definitely highlights it as like, a, oh yeah, this is very rated R. <laughs> this is mature content. And like I said before, you know, recommending it, you kind of want to, you know, you don't want to just recommend it to any coworker. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. Initial scene before you even know about her past, when she's getting sort of locked into the cuffs and whatnot, and you yeah. kind of realize what her husband is doing and what he's capable of. Yeah. I mean, Carla sells that scene so well because obviously the audience is kind of getting the hint that like, okay, this guy is either kind of like slimy or he's capable of more than he's letting on. Maybe his sort of like nice car and clean cut persona would lead you to believe. Yeah. But to see her reaction to realize like, hey, this is the person that I'm married to and this is what he's capable of and this is what he's into. Like she sells that moment so well that it's like it's terrifying it's one of it's probably more terrifying to me than uh the stuff with the moonlight yeah. man because yeah sure the moonlight man it's a guy standing in the corner of the room but which one of these scenarios is more realistic that you could be married to somebody that actually is sort of like not sort of he is a monster underneath or this supernatural type figure that's yeah. in the corner of my room yeah that right? that might do something while the things with your husband you're already experiencing and and that's the thing also it's like um uh with, with how she reacted to um uh how far he was taking it, it, it you know and, and with her mannerisms prior you could already tell that like okay this whole stint it's you know they must be on the last legs of their marriage uh uh it's obvious at that point that she knows who her husband truly is so the fact that even after the handcuffs came out she was still surprised and shocked of how far he was taking it really like oh yeah it makes the moonlight man kind of just seem like you know not that big of a threat and which also you know he was in her ear the whole time well i guess her own mind was in her ear the whole time <laughs> uh uh portraying the moonlight man as uh you know what he's going to do unless she gets out of there in a, in a set amount of time yeah definitely and i think also to go back to like your comp you mentioned the invisible man i mean the part of what made the most recent invisible man work so well for me is this idea that it's like okay it's not very likely that somebody's ever gonna have an invisibility suit, but it is more likely the horrors of their relationship is something that is very much grounded in the reality. And it's like one of those conversations that people find uncomfortable, but it's like, that's been a reality for a long time now, yeah. this idea people are in these toxic controlling relationships. And likewise with Gerald's game, I think it shows like, there are these people out, these very real people out there that are capable of doing these horrific things to people and raping their spouses and all of these disturbing yeah, and horrific sure. acts. And like you had said, it shows that at the end of the day, what's more terrifying in uh, reality, like this idea that this guy is going to show up in the corner of your room at night when you wake up or that your spouse could be like this monster. Underneath yeah, that you. actually put you in this situation. Yeah, it's it's wild. Right. Their relationship is so believable, mm -hmm. too. And I think 
The part that I found to be equally shocking is the joke that he tells her or that her sort of, um, that her, she remembers that she heard him say at that Christmas party where he says this like horrifically misogynistic oh, joke yeah. about women basically being a life support system for their uh, reproductive parts, which is just like, I think the first time I heard that, it didn't really register because of what I had just seen him attempt mm-hmm. to do. But now, kind of like foreseeing that that scene was obviously coming next, when the joke hit, it just like, the way in which he says it is so matter of fact and so just like overtly disgusting, obviously. Um, it's one of those scenes that it just was like, yeah, I could actually imagine people making jokes like that in these kind of like high corporate business parties or these these sort of like yeah. uh, monster, monsters in suits with uh, with cool smiles and whatnot, like monsters hiding in plain sight. Yeah, city. exactly. And for him to like know that his marriage is like over so much that like the only reason he went through with this whole stint at the lake house was so that he could, you know, just treat her like an object. Obviously, he's gotten past to that point where that's all he sees her, you know, especially with that joke in mind and bringing it up. It's just like, yeah, just makes you not want to makes you just root for her harder. Exactly. And I think that it, it shows again just how well Carla really sells that role in that. Yeah, she's very easy to root for because of this horrific person that she's uh, that she was trapped mm-hmm. with. And even in his death and her being free, essentially, of yeah. that, like that is in and of itself a new trauma that she kind of has to unpack and deal with. And it's uh, the, just the way that Flanagan really captures kind of like what her mental state is like and the utilization of the hallucinations and how even though the husband is this scumbag, there's something to be learned from like listening to his hallucination, right? Even if he is sort of like chiding her the whole time and being this piece of, still an abusive piece of shit even in the afterlife. um, It's just interesting how like something is learned from each of the hallucinations. It's not really this, oh, let's just have him say horrific shit the entire time, which he definitely does for part of it. But that character is utilized for more than that. Oh yeah, exactly. He's like, he's basically like the one that instigates her to be prepared to like face traumas now. Like she already, you know, with her father, it's something that's, that's past that she, you know, obviously still has to face. And it's like what with her and her husband, it's like the most in focus, uh, uh, hurdle, uh, at that time. So it's like, yeah, he's like egging her on, but that's what makes it. So the ending, it's like, you know, I, I talked to some people and they kind of seem dissatisfied with the ending. But for me, it's like it, it makes perfect sense, especially with like how past her uh, husband and, you know, the trauma of being trapped to that bed that the Moonlight Man was still uh, haunting her. So in that sense of uh, once she, you know, found out that he was a real thing, that wasn't just part of her nightmares uh, that like lingered on from that event and that she could just approach him and be like, you know, and 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 get that closure immediately you know and so that's what makes it like her husband so uh important in that aspect of what he does yeah and i think that it really kind of reinforces how tragic of a character she is because at one point Mm -hmm. her hallucination of herself says like well you married into the only dynamic you've ever Mm -hmm. known um and i think that that's something that that's a line that could maybe be lost on some people but at the same time like when you rewatch the movie you really sort of, it strikes you in a different way because it's just like, well, this isn't just thinking about the past and this current event. Like this has been a, essentially a cycle that never ended, right? It's just kind of like a different form of abuse or it's trading out this sort of negative archetype that through trauma has been uh, drawn to in a way. And it kind of just shows how like 
one event as a child and how traumatic it is, if it's not dealt with by pro the proper people, like it can really derail people's lives. And I think that's obvious. It's not like a stretch to that. Most people wouldn't realize that, but I think that it's just interesting how the film is able to really capture just how complex relationships are, how traumatic and, uh, and just kind of like world shaking that trauma can be at such a young age and how you're able to explore these very real world issues and um, and just problems in the context of a Stephen King novel, yeah. which anybody that's familiar with King knows that that's like his yeah, bread and exactly. butter. But I'm thinking about like people that stumbled upon this on Netflix and they're just like, OK, it's Stephen King, like he writes horror stories. But I think films like this on such a major platform are really fantastic. Yeah. Just in showing people like what horror is capable yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. And this was like right when the horror like renaissance was really ramping up too. And like, you know, there were the, the fact that this got greenlit and stuff, just like the whole, I mean, it had to be mostly because it was a Stephen King adaptation and everything at that time. Because yeah, it was 2017, right? And that was like it chapter one. And oh yeah. It's one of those films though, where I'm like, I could just imagine that pitch meeting <laughs> and I'm sure the, the people at Netflix are just like, are you sure you don't want to adapt literally anything other than uh, this for <laughs> us of Stephen yeah. King's? Cause like, it's just so the premise is so heavy. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, like if Flanagan was not up to it, which he obviously was, then it's just somebody writhing around in a bed for 90 minutes. And the, his ability to really like keep us in the present to display her mental state and then to explore her past and flashbacks and just it's so seamlessly paced in its kind of like traversal of all of these different uh, facets of her story and it, whether it's past or present i think it's just really remarkable and it's a much tighter film than i remember it's a little longer than 90 minutes or whatever but um it's one of those movies that i think really does not get enough credit just in how clean it is and yet how much depth there is to it it really doesn't kind of skimp on any one facet of the story or um kind of like any moment there's no moment that feels oh, yeah. wasted in this like it it ramps your adrenaline up so much so that like it makes the pacing better like i noticed that like half the time i was watching the movie like leaning forward like i was right like i needed to be ready to like escape the movie at any time especially it was like my second rewatch and then like the other half of the movie i spent just like pacing and at that point it was like the whole third act because when it gets to the point with the the hand and her getting out it's just i knew it was gonna get me again because the first time i saw it i i was actually like i got really lightheaded and I had to, I had oh, to wow. stop the movie. And I stopped it. I drank some water, and I just decided to just go to bed. And I finished it the next day. <laughs> like that's how hard it hit me. And so, like today, when I watched it, I realized I hadn't eaten yet. And I'm not gonna eat while I watch this movie, especially when I know it's what's coming up. And so, like, yeah, just during that part, I was like, I was just pacing my living room, like, oh god, she's selling it so well. It's not even, it's not even like the 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 effects either. Like, we're not talking the prosthetic. It's like her her grunts her screams are just like she sells it so dang well like yep if you had to do that that's what it would sound and look and feel like i bet yeah and i think that also he's so i think it's so precise when the sort of degloving scene happens right because if you try to have a moment like that too early mm -hmm. on it almost doesn't feel earned yeah. right and at this point we're rooting for her to the degree that it's like yeah, she now this is like the final test to see if she can actually escape. And that scene is so important as soon as she like gets her hand out after she's basically ripped it off. 
because the entire time I'm watching that scene, I keep dreading that this is another dream sequence. Yeah, exactly. Because right? she has that that escape fantasy early <laughs> on where she like rips the rips her hand out of it, and then she rips the bed pull off, and then she's able to slide the other handcuff off of it and just run out of the room. And then her husband's like, do you really think that happened, essentially? And then she realizes, oh, no, I'm still in the bed. Yeah, that part was just like, that was, yeah, that was pure torture. Like, her mind was really playing tricks on her. But the scene I think that even gets me more is in terms of, like, the tension. Obviously, with the degloving scene, and she has to, like, break this glass, and then she has to essentially slit her wrist just enough so she can pull her hand out. And it's obviously gruesome and disgusting. But the first scene when she needs the glass of water that's on the um, the stand above her head or the shelf above her head, mm-hmm. like that scene, I found myself kind of like you said, I was like holding my breath for oh, that yeah. scene. Because if she just barely makes a mistake or it slips, then she's dead basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that is just such a sort of like nail-biting scene. And the best nail-biting scenes are the ones that are people doing mundane things that have high stakes, right? I mean, it's just her getting a glass of water and yet the stakes are so incredibly high because if she doesn't succeed, she's dead. It's like a massive massive attention to detail, like to like the only few things that she can control in that moment. And so there's like the payoff, the risk is like so much higher. Yeah, and I think, and you're bringing up like uh, small details, the way that she makes the straw, I'd completely forgot because I was like, oh, she got the glass of water, she can drink it. And then of course, the uh, the dark irony is is that she can't reach her mouth with yeah. the glass, right? Because it's there's not enough slack in the chains. But then she has this sort of traumatic memory of again her husband queuing up to have his uh, rape fantasy, and then he mentions a line of dialogue again where it's uh, I love this slip on you, and I was like, oh, is are we just gonna have to be exposed to like this traumatic scene again? But no, there's a meaning behind it because then that triggers in her mind, oh. I took that tag off and now I can turn that into a straw. Yeah. Like I love the use of the callback that actually serves a purpose, obviously in the greater narrative. And it shows just Flanagan's unwillingness to really to use trauma in a way that feels exploitive for the sake of being so there's always a meaning behind it. And I think that that's very important. Yeah, Very creative too. That was one of those scenes where I was like, holy shit, how did I forget that moment? Yeah. Because it is such a creative solution mm-hmm to a problem that, again, if it had been any other filmmaker, they might be like, well, you know, maybe there is more slack in the chains than we thought. Yeah, it was in that moment where she's like telling herself, like, don't drop it, like, don't give up. And I was just like, I would give up. Like, and it like, I feel like I had that thought as much in this movie as I did when I watched The Martian. Like there was so many times when I was watching The Martian where I was like, nah, I'd give up by then. Like, and and that's how I (laughs) felt about Gerald's game. I was like, I'm really rooting for her, but like my mental capacity, I don't know if I could go through all this, especially <laughs> the degloving. Like, yeah, it, it just shows how strong, obviously, of a character she is, and just, I think again, it's important when you're displaying victims of abuse and trauma that you don't portray them as being defeated, because then otherwise it's like, well, what's the point really? Or maybe rather, that would be in line with people's sort of like. I don't know, stereotypical view maybe of people that have had those experiences. And I think that his ability to make her a very strong character without making her be like a superhuman, you know what I mean? Like it's important. It's a difficult balance, right? Because you don't want to make them seem like a victim out the gate, but you also don't want to make them seem as if they're invulnerable because then you're never going to 
garner any real terror or fear, yeah. which obviously is a pretty big part of uh, horror mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> yeah, and that's what kind of makes it easier to recommend because you know with this movie, it, it really does uh, give her like the, the room to like get all this closure and like even though you go through all this insanity this absolute nightmare that i don't wish upon anybody uh by the end of it you're just like man she's like probably the strongest person ever like in the king universe now like easily the way that flanagan handles that balance of portraying her character sort of the obvious immediate plight of being trapped in the bed her past but also his sort of the tame use of scares or maybe his more restrained handling of scares. There aren't a lot of like traditionally scary moments in the film, Mm -hmm. right? I think there's only a couple, but they come at such a key time. And I think the Moonlight Man facilitates that mostly, um, which again, I could see a lot of directors having an over-reliance on him, right? Kind of like, oh, this is this creepy looking character who's doing all these nefarious things. I could see an over-reliance on wanting to include him, but then obviously if you're going to overexpose the audience to him, he's all of a sudden not terrifying and loses a lot of the sort of significance of what his character represents. Yeah, and from what I can remember, I don't think they used him too heavily in the marketing, which is good. I feel like other directors that would use him too heavily in the marketing, people would expect that, like, you know, maybe she gets out of it faster than she does, you know? And I think also if they had sort of used him heavily in the marketing it would have given the wrong perception of what the movie mm-hmm. is because the movie is obviously not about mm-hmm. him and he is used just sparingly enough that had they had an overexposure of him in the market and people would have been like, well, I thought he was going to be more in it, but it's like, no, he's used just enough. Like he is so perfectly used that it really highlights the elements that Flanagan really wanted to highlight, which is obviously like her relationship with especially men in this world and sort of like being a victim, but not letting that rule her life in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways moving past this situation which i think is important um but yeah the two scenes with him that i think do stand out as being very well done are um the first instance where she sees him in the corner of the room and just the way in which you can't see him at first and then really as our eyes sort of adjust obviously he comes more into focus you just see him standing there and it's this towering figure um that's a really fantastic instance. oh yeah the character design is just so good and I believe that that's the same actor that's in um, Doctor Sleep. Oh uh, yeah, I believe so. I believe the tall, yeah, yeah, the tall man from that too. But also the scene where she's having that flashback from her childhood, once she's had that really disturbing talk where her father essentially convinces her not to tell the mother what happened by saying like, "Oh, we should tell her, but if we tell her, it'll destroy our lives." Type of conversation, yeah. which is another is equally disturbing, and I think that. That is similar to The Invisible Man again in that some of the most disturbing parts of that movie are just conversations mm-hmm. that people have. And it shows that Flanagan doesn't really need to keep returning to traumatic imagery. He can be he can portray that trauma with dialogue, which, if anything, I think really sticks with me more so. Um, just because it shows like how manipulative people can be. And you don't have to show something for it to be disturbing, like something... Sure explicit yeah exactly like like just like with the degloving scene like i looked away a couple times i'm like i know what happens i know it's gonna happen like i don't need to visually see it too much but uh uh, luckily they didn't go uh you know they went really they went really hardcore with it i'm not even gonna say they didn't uh (laughs) (laughs) i actually uh when i used to work at starbucks i uh met the guy who was like one of the cameramen 
that works with Flanagan. And this was uh, right after they shot Dr. Sleep. And he, I, when I, I mentioned that, when he mentioned that to me, and because uh, uh, he was wearing a jacket that had Dr. Sleep on it, and that's what I brought it up. And I was like, where'd you get that jacket? And he said that he works with uh, Flanagan, and they, he helps with the movie. Oh, and wow. I was like, oh my God, what are the coincidences? And uh, yeah, I'm like, because I'm my way out, I'm like South Texas. This is like Houston, basically. And uh, uh, whatchamacallit, I, I told him about Gerald's game. It's like, that was the first Flanagan thing I watched. I was like, and I had to stop the movie. And he was like, he kind of seemed like offended a little bit. And I was like, no, I was like, I had to stop it because I was like getting vertigo or something. I was like, I had to finish it the next day because <laughs> yeah. the degloving scene was so grueling. And he was like, oh, yeah, even filming it, he's like, with the prosthetics, like, he was like, that was really hardcore. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's part of why it looks so well, right? Is because they're using a real prosthetic. Mm-hmm. So just because you're. Maybe if even if you're on set, you're not looking at it through the uh, camera lens. Like it's still oh, fucked yeah. up. And I I agree with you that it is really fucked up. But again, he doesn't sort of like return to that shot a lot, right? We don't have to get a bunch of shots afterwards of her like limp wrist hanging off, and it's not sort of like egregiously used. And it makes it more uh, more impactful, yeah. right? Because it's not an overexposure yeah, or something. Exactly. And up until that point you kind of are seeing the degradation of her limbs, right? It goes from having like leg cramps to like her wrists becoming black and blue because she's lost the circulation. And that's really smart because if there's only one moment of violence in the movie or one moment of gore or uh, graphic content in the movie, you want it to be fucking memorable, right? Because that's the one scene that everybody is going to, when you recommend it, you say, it's a good movie, but there's one scene that's really fucked up. Like that is, I feel like the type of movie you would want to make in a lot of ways because it's like, you want to make a scene that's so memorable that nobody's going to forget Yeah, exactly. It. Violence and horror is one of those things that it's like, yeah, there's, there's of course, horror movies that we all enjoy where it's like you're desensitized to the violence in the first 20 minutes. But there's also these movies like Flanagan makes where it's like violence is not super prevalent, but when there is violence or gore in it, like, you definitely remember Yeah, it. the man definitely hates hands, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He, uh, yeah, and it's funny, we were talking before the show about, um, about Resident Evil Village and just like thinking about how in that game, like there's a character that gets a lot of trauma done to his hands and just thinking about how the realm of horror in some way or another has like been influenced by Flanagan's distaste for hands and how he just wants to fuck them up in the most gruesome ways. I feel like I've seen hands mingled in every way possible just between them two. But I think also one of the scenes that I think is the only real jump, like jump scare in the movie. And I almost hesitate to call it that is the scene with the Moonlight Man when Jesse's having that flashback after she has that uncomfortable scene with her father having that conversation. And then she like leans back and then you hear like a licking sound. Oh, yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? And the camera pans and then you see the Moonlight Man like licking her <laughs> yeah. foot. And it's like, I completely forgot that moment and I like jumped out of my seat when that happened because it's so out of left yeah. field that it just shows Flanagan's ability to like use these staples of horror filmmaking mm-hmm. but he uses them so sparingly that they're effective yeah. it was like yeah that that part definitely got me too and i feel like it's mostly not even just like it was just his eyes and just like the instance yeah. and you kind of think afterwards you're like oh god did that really happen to her like she was asleep when he was <laughs> in there and stuff like what's mm-hmm. real what's not oh no there's such a fantastic blending of that right this what is real and what is not that i think really keeps us kind of guessing throughout the course of the movie or at least it makes everything more heightened. And obviously she's like in this horrific predicament, so it's pretty heightened to begin with. But I really like that angle that 
I never felt like I really had a grasp on what was real and what was not, which causes me to sort of like second guess myself and everything I see, which just makes for this very simple premise, very engaging in a way that had it not had that element, I think it would have been more sort of black and white. Whereas Gerald's game sort of has this gray area as to what is actually happening throughout that I really, really yeah, like. Yeah, like really good attention to detail and just like, yeah, just really good storytelling. Yeah, and I think little details, just like having the dog sit in the background and like while she's talking to the hallucinations and the dog is kind of just like chomping <laughs> on her dead, dead husband just periodically just what, and it like isn't a big dogs scene. do, but you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's such a, uh, a stark reminder of her predicament, right? Because there's a couple of scenes of dialogue that go on for a while and it's almost like you almost forget sort of where she's at because she's having this back and forth. But then immediately it snaps to the dog and he's like licking his chops and he's chewing on bones and he's all bloody and shit. And you're just, oh no, she's still trapped in this batshit insane predicament yeah. that uh, is does not seem to be getting mm -hmm. any better. But yeah, I mean, when you're thinking about Gerald's game, what is the scene for you that probably stands out the most other than like the degloving scene? Or maybe it's not even a scene, but an element of the film that you think makes this the standout from Flanagan's other films? Uh, to me, it's the probably my favorite aspect of this movie is uh just early on like um after her husband dies and she's just like not sure like what to do like when she's still kind of like settling in but the moment like she starts like it's the it's the trickery of the mind like the fact that it kind of already got to that point it shows that she is like her me mental mental levels are kind of like unstable in that aspect she's more uh more inclined to give in to this scenario like letting the the chaos rule it all so i i think that is probably like a my favorite aspect of this movie and i forgot about was just how it's like a scene will play out and then it'll cut back to like oh nope that didn't happen like we're, we're, we're already jumping to that point where she's just like what's real what's not and we haven't even the dog really barely was introduced <laughs> that is obvious is probably the strongest aspect for me as well mm -hmm. but also like in mentioning the dog i love that there's there's not one element of the story that feels like it's overused. Mm -hmm. Cause again, like we get, I think two two parts where the dog like starts to gnaw at mm -hmm. her or whatever. Cause when she falls asleep, but again, like that's two very brief scenes and it never becomes the focus of any scenes. There's never any really prolonged fight with the dog because that would draw attention away from her. Yeah. Right. And I think that he's so smart. And again, like getting at the core of all of King's, a majority of King's work in that the characters are front and center. And again, that's like a very obvious thing to say, but at the same time, how many directors really abide yeah. by that all the time or to the degree that they should, right? Because I think this this movie does not work if you try to make it about the scenario or the scene or the mm -hmm. setting itself. It's always has to be about yeah. her because that's the most interesting part. Otherwise, this is like a 10 minute short. Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah, and it is really all about the pacing and uh, the fact that like every about 10 minutes or so is like another scenario that like she has to, to, to continue to deal with. It's nothing is being absolved really besides her like getting in control of the water. But then it's also about preservation of making sure it lasts enough long enough. So yeah, it is just like, like I said, it's like constant like haymakers of just like, oh, here's all this situations you got to deal with on top of, you know, the fact that you're uh, handcuffed to a bed in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and uh, a scene that actually just, I just remembered that is really fucking chilling from the beginning of the film is when it's probably like the first 30 minutes when she realizes like, okay, he's dead. 
and then she starts screaming for help. Um, and then this, the camera like pans out from the bedroom to the living room, to the front of the house, and then like down the street to show us that like nobody can oh, hear absolutely. her screaming. And again, it's such a brief moment, but it really sort of like encapsulates her terror. And that's more effective than having her scream for like 10 minutes or whatever, in terms of just like having that be a recurring thing. Flanagan's really able to summarize what he wants, the emotion he wants to really evoke in a way that is very economical. Again, with time, I think is really uh, a, a strength of his as a filmmaker. He wastes not a single minute of this movie, I feel like. And this is a movie that had it been like, it's not that much longer than 90 minutes. And yet if it was another filmmaker that tried to divert the attention from the primary character, then we would have gotten so many more sort of scenes where it's like, was that really yeah. needed? Do we need another 15 minute scene of her like writhing around or screaming her head off? No, yeah. because ultimately it's more interesting to get to know her. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as somebody that's read the novel, I'm curious, are there any elements of the novel that are actually, that the film maybe doesn't capitalize on? Because we've said like how well of an adaptation it is, but are there any elements that the film maybe doesn't get right or doesn't portray faithfully to the novel? Not that I could remember. It, it has been like maybe like, you know, close to like four years since I've read it. But one thing that um, it, it does, um, I did bring up uh, while I was doing this rewatch was uh, just how her husband dies because he starts to kind of like have the heart attack in the middle of a, a, a conversation, like in the middle of a, a, a sentence. But in the uh, book, it's actually, she like kicks him in the balls and then kicks him in the chest. Like she's really defending herself way more. Like he really does in the book, it is way more like graphic in that sense of how much he comes on to her. So I do like remember how they kind of, they didn't make it obviously it's still very you you have so much disdain for him and how he's uh, uh, approaching this matter even though she's being completely serious on how she doesn't want to continue going forward so they still did a very good job of uh, uh uh getting you know wrapping that up in the sense of how he uh passes away yeah you know the one thing i i would think maybe the reason that they that's the part that maybe was not or that was altered for the film is that if we had to watch him be even more aggressive, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if it gets to the point where he is physically like beating her or something to that extent, mm -hmm. it might be kind of difficult to have to be in that character's presence for the remainder. Yeah, of the exactly. Film. You know what I mean? Like they do such a good job of establishing early on that this guy is a creep. And then he is clearly a piece of shit rapist mm -hmm. that it's like, yeah, you obviously Nobody can sit through this movie and have anything but disdain for this guy who's a scumbag. Yeah. And yet, if it was taken even, if it was more elevated than what was portrayed, I feel like I would not even want to be, him to be in the scenes that we were watching yeah. almost. Like, he's in the next hour of the movie or whatever. And it's like, that might actually be kind of difficult to watch then after a while for some people. So I think, I think Flanagan, again, he finds this, this sort of like even balance yeah. of everything, right? He's able to tackle super disturbing subject matter, have something important to say about it, have a character that overcomes that. And yet he never feels the need to like throw these explicit moments in our face that might feel like too much for what he's trying yeah, to do. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very trauma heavy, but it never like gets to the point where it's like trauma porn. You know what I mean? Like it's never right. getting to the point yeah. where it's just overtly excessive. And that's what makes it um, uh, so much of a better uh, of story. And that's what like makes it to the point where, yeah, you, you looks like you can actually adapt this into film and do it right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
This is definitely serves as one of the best examples of his filmography, I think, in terms of just showing like somebody that is cognizant of what is the important elements of it, this King novel. But then it also shows like his ability to adapt something in a way that this, I mean, the story should not be as adaptable as he made yeah. it, right? I mean, the fact that he's able to apply so many different important facets and layers to this story that is very simple on the surface, I think is really, uh, it's remarkable on a character level, but also he's able to have little bits of horror in there that don't necessarily feel like they're disingenuous to the real drive of the story, mm-hmm. right? I think had he kind of like had a lot of these sort of traditional horror moments in it, it almost sort of does sort of a disservice to the overall tone and message of the yeah. movie in some ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a fantastic uh, introduction to Flanagan for you. If this was <laughs> oh, yeah. your first. And I mean, it, it definitely made the hype for Dr. Sleep way better, like because I had already read Dr. Sleep, very familiar with it, loved, loved the book. And so when I found out that he was adapting it, but also he was kind of bending the uh, um, Stanley Kubrick universe into it, like switching up the ending from what I had heard like early on, like this is like even when during production that I heard that they were doing that. I um, I was like totally down for it still. I was like, okay, if you can still adapt Dr. Sleep into this, to the, how good the book is and how good the story of Abra is, and then also intertwine it to the, the film like that would be and then yeah of course he knocked it out of the park with that as well so basically anything with flanagan stamped on it i'm definitely there day one yeah absolutely i mean he's a filmmaker that i think with everything whether it's an adaptation or whether it's an original he really leaves this sort of unique mark on it that it's sort of difficult to sort of pigeonhole him into any one sort of pillar of Mm -hmm. horror right he's sort of he's just very um he's very cognizant of like the root of the story that needs to be told. And he's able to really apply just this kind of like haunting aura to everything, yeah. whether it's again, this adaptation or if it's an original uh, screenplay and it's, he's a director that from the first time you watch him, like I feel like for most people, like you're just a fan from the jump. If you enjoy that film, like there aren't many films of his that aren't in line with his own sort of like unique horror sensibilities that they work really well for me. And I'm glad they work as well. Yeah, for you. Exactly. But uh, hey, man, this was a blast talking Gerald's game. Yeah, for sure, man. Anytime. I'm a film that uh, I think I'm always surprised that it works as well as it does, but it's definitely one that I'm glad Flanagan was at the helm of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.